Hey, it's good to see you this morning. If you're new, I'm looking forward to meeting you a little bit later on. Um, thanks for coming to Legacy Church. If you have a Bible or a device, go ahead and turn to Ecclesiastes 3. We're going to keep moving through this series we started a couple weeks ago. I love passages like this because it gives us an opportunity to see how indestructible your gospel is. I love about your Bible the fact that you can find Christ and are in fact on a path towards the good news of the gospel regardless of where you flip open. It could be in Lamentations, it could be in Revelation, or it could even be in a very awkwardly read book like Ecclesiastes because the preacher of this book has done nothing but show you and me the boundaries of what we can expect when we live life under the sun. Under the sun meaning by the rules of this world, looking for meaning and purpose alone in this world. And this main voice that we've been hearing, he calls himself the preacher, right, which is where we get the word Ecclesiastes. He is the assembler, the teacher. Um, he might be Solomon. I lean towards that. He could be somebody posturing to be Solomon. He could be somebody in Solomon's position. But he has unlimited resources, unlimited opportunity, and a lot of wisdom. And his conclusion is... You can't really expect much living life under the sun because there's nothing new under the sun, nothing ultimate we're seeing, nothing satisfying, nothing permanent, nothing memorable. In fact, it says everything is hevel. Hevel is this odd word. It, it means that it appears to be there, but it's a lie. It's not really there. It's futile. It's absurd. It's like a fog or a mist that we treat like a solid object. It's something that looks tangible and looks meaningful, but actually is a vacuum, has nothing for us. And so today, the preacher is going to read us a poem. And I think it might be one of the most quoted poems in human history, only because it was lifted word for word, the first eight verses, word for word, to make a song back in the 1960s, right? Back then, there was a guy named Pete Seeger who wrote a song called Turn, Turn, Turn. That was the name of the song. Um, it was kind of unpopular for the first few years, as songs do sometimes. But then the Birds, a band you've probably never heard of, got their hands on this song and wrote it all the way to the top of the charts. It was right around the Vietnam era, Turn, Turn, Turn. It actually still holds the distinction today of having the oldest lyrics of any song that has ever been ranked on any chart in music history that we have records of. It's been covered by over 85 different musicians, most of them you've never heard of. And what all these people probably don't know is that it's straight out of the Old Testament, this awkward book of Ecclesiastes. My mom, who was in middle school around that time, I called her up this week and I said, hey, you've heard of this song, right? And, and she, she doesn't just say yes, she starts singing it, right? And I said, okay, all right, did you know that was from Ecclesiastes? She said, yeah, I, I know that. I said, did you know it when you first heard it? She said, no. I said, what, what do you think the breakdown is of people that knew that that was from the Bible versus people that knew that that was not? She said, I think probably less than half the people knew that that was from the Old Testament. Listen, I'm not going to sing it either because that would be weird. But we are going to read it together. And I think it's going to show us Christ in a way that's going to be helpful for all of us. I also think it's going to be helpful in showing you and me how God orders the events and the times and the seasons of our reality and how that's going to be good news for you and me. It's going to help us trust God more with how he arranges history. So we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, 
We have some free ones for you out front. You can grab one on your way out of here. That's our gift to you, but we will splash this on the screen. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Our preacher says this, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. I think this is probably a good juncture for us to recognize that this poem, like a lot of your Bible, mentions a lot of things and yet does not advocate everything that it mentions. Okay, it's going to be important for us, that distinction right there. What this does is it's giving us 14 pairs of events or moments or emotions, right? But it's actually really only giving us a wide spectrum and scope of the human experience. It's just describing our reality. This is important for us because something that is mentioned in your Bible might be mentioned and might be mentioned for a good reason, but it might not be endorsed. Not everything in your Bible is endorsed by your Bible. There's racism mentioned and discussed and shown and displayed in your Bible. Misogyny is on display by people in the Bible. People have multiple wives. There's adultery. There's murder. All mentioned, none advocated, right? Listen, I'm not going to get political with you up here. I've managed to pastor in the, in the church in some degree through six presidential elections, and I've never once told people where to vote or what to do. I will say it's going to be good for us to be courageous in the future in the face of what is being called cancel culture. Okay, Cancel culture, if you're not familiar with it, is where we socially quarantine people that have done or said or worn or have done something in the past, whether the past is um, last week or whether it's 20 years ago or professionally ruin them, oftentimes both. That's what people mean when they say cancel culture or someone is being canceled, right? But now we're at a place where it's accelerated and you're not just canceled for things that you have said or things that you have done or have worn. You can be canceled by being associated with things that are unpopular. Not immoral, just unpopular, like your Bible. Like some of the things mentioned in your Bible. You need to know that passages like what we're reading today, put it in the shoebox. It's a big reason why this is a problem. It mentions that there's a time to kill, a time for hate, a time for war, and a lot of people are going to have a problem with this, even though it's just describing reality. Not only that, you're going to find a lot of passages, not one or two, but a few passages in your New Testament where Paul is telling slaves how to behave, right? How he's telling them how to hold themselves, where he's speaking to people who have servants and slaves. You see him talking to Timothy about it. You see him talking to Titus about it. You see Peter commenting on it. You see it often, right? And a lot of people struggle with that, and that's why a lot of the culture says that the Bible is pro-slavery, when actually it's the opposite. The Bible is anti-slavery. The Bible was the main textbook that William Wilberforce used. If this has been a struggle for you, by the way, because I'm not going to go deep into 
these things now. There is a blog on our website that asks the question, is slavery or is the Bible pro-slavery? The answer is no, but you can read that. There's a link in there to a sermon that I preached probably seven years ago that just focuses on that one thing. But what I want you to see in this is that people have always been broken and people have always been a product of their times. That's the things that we can guarantee ourselves. We, we were born into this world broken and shaped by the currents that swirl around us in culture and society. Your parents were too and your grandparents were. That's why five generations from now, people will be wondering why we thought the way we did and why we said the words that we did and why we had the actions that we had. Well, it's good for us to know that we're not wiser and more noble than those who lived a thousand years ago. It's it's an act of chronological snobbery when we read our Bible and we think that it's just full of cavemen and toddlers and total criminals. Fact is, is it actually is. But we are too. We haven't evolved morally by any means. Our Bible is pretty much the grand narrative, a story of a scandalous people in need of a scandalous gospel. So when the world at large takes a peek inside of your Bible and finds total morons doing evil things all the time and then finds out that you're associated with it, that this is a story of very broken people, and then we read it, and then we're a, we're a part of a church, or we're a Christian, they're going to associate you with those things. They're going to be appalled. But what else would you find in a book like this? It's a story of how humanity has tried to fix its own problem without Christ. It's a story about how we've tried to roll up our own sleeves and either use kings or judges or the law to fix our very big cosmic problem. Of course it's going to find that. We're all in need of a hero on a white horse who comes in and makes all crooked things straight. So I think it's just probably a good detour to take in this passage before we even move forward, just to recognize that there are going to be some things that we just read that might bother you, that there's a time for war, a time for hate, a time for things that that seem not awesome, not noble, not right. And it's not advocating these things, it's mentioning these things. And it's stating very clearly for you and me, this is the reality that we live in. The takeaway you're supposed to get from this is that there is an order and there's a boundary to all times and all seasons. And nothing seems to sit still. Time just doesn't sit still for us, right? It's like if you've ever looked in a kaleidoscope and you've turned the lens just to see the multiple shapes and colors kind of appear, it feels and looks chaotic. It looks unpredictable. It's always changing. And that's the way time works right in front of our eyes. But here's the thing. It's got a design to it. God himself has designed these things. Reality is, as we all know this, because we've all crossed times and seasons into another time or season. You've had a moment of boredom, and then you've had a moment of pleasure. Back to boredom, back to pleasure, to terror and horror, to stress, to depression. We've all had moments where we've moved from time or season to another time and season. This is why you've caught yourself saying out loud, I wish I could freeze this moment in time forever. Right? Why do we say that? Because we understand the essence of what's bringing us so much joy is evaporating. As quick as we notice it, it's probably leaving. You know, me, me and the guys were up here laughing earlier of an old song that Cinderella, a glam hair metal band back in the 80s came out with, Don't Know What You Got Till It's Gone, right? That was, believe it or not, it was a super popular song back then, a big power ballad. Don't Know What You Got Till It's Gone. But it's a riff on something that we say all the time. Why do we say that? It's because we have this sneaking regret and suspicion that something in the past 
should have been enjoyed more than it was. But now it's behind us and we can't get it back. Because we understand as people that time changes, moments turn, events move on. Your best memories have edges to them. I mean, just think of a good memory right now. Anything. Kid, last week, anything. Something that comes to your mind. Now try to remember what happened three days before that or two days after that. You can't. Because it's just washed away in a sea of normal. So this poem is a little bit about how time changes, but it also talks about how tyrannical it is for you and me. Time is a tyranny over us. You see, God designs all of the things that happen, the events and the moments and the seasons. And here's the thing that bugs me most about about how he does that. He doesn't have a comment card box where we can all weigh in and give input on our opinions on how he arranges the events of human history. He doesn't allow us to speak into this. But don't you wish he did? Don't you wish God actually asked for our input? Because here's the reality. Most everyone in this room is excited about the end product of where God is bringing us. This perfect place where there's no sadness and no boredom and no tears. And we are seeing by the light of the glory of God forever. I mean, this beautiful place we're all on board with, right? We just want God to take different routes to get there. We're just not super stoked about how he's getting from A to B. That's why when you read your Bible or you read the news, you catch yourself thinking or even saying sometimes, God, there had to have been like a thousand different ways to do this if the goal is for you to be glorified. If, if, if the goal was for your deepest glory and for mankind's deepest pleasure, this seems like it's moving against the grain. This is like it's going the wrong way. But God says in Isaiah 46, I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Friends, this is a declaration of God's sovereignty. And if you're not familiar with that word, because it can be a $10 word for a lot of people, we have talked about it up here before. God's sovereignty is just the theology and the truth that God has all power and he rules all things according to his brilliant will, even through events and occurrences that look like it's going the wrong way. Even through events that look like it's contradicting the very thing that he's trying to do. He has all power and he is the ruler of all things. He says in Psalm 135, whatever pleases, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth and the seas and all deeps. So God has a master plan, but we only see pieces of it. And the pieces of our life that we see inside of this master plan, our preacher's been talking about how insignificant it is. So what does he conclude about everything that we've looked at so far? Look at verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it. So that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. 
Here's the takeaway of his conclusion. If nothing is permanent and we have no control over what God does and all we can do is fill up our days with busy, with busy things, busy time, minor league pleasures, small temporal joys from here to there, a little bit of food, a little bit of work, that's basically the best that we can hope for. That's what we're left with. And not only that, not everybody even gets these small diversions. I mean, you've noticed that. Some people don't even have these small things to bring them small amounts of joy. God gives, and then God takes away. Some people have a lot of these diversions. Some people don't have any. So it's up to him. And all of this leaves us with a very sad reality, that God is in control, changes all of our moments according to his will, the one we can't even see, the one that doesn't always feel awesome for us, and the reality is, is we are left to deal with it to cope with it, to contend with it. And this just leaves a bad taste in our mouth. Why? Because we want to be sovereign. I want to be sovereign. I want control and say over these things. Ask anybody who has had an addiction, a miscarriage. Ask anybody who has lost a family member or a spouse, anyone who has lost a career or their retirement. Ask them if they think that they would have done something different or done something better than what God had done. We, we all want to be sovereign. It's because we're in the image of God. We're all planners, strategists. We all like to design outcomes. And we would think in our minds that if we were to design our outcome, we certainly wouldn't put a glitch in the matrix that looked like a miscarriage or cancer. We wouldn't do that. Not if the goal was to celebrate a good God. But then again, we have to admit that we're not very in the know of what God is doing. We're greatly limited in what we can see. And this is part of the preacher's frustration. If you and I all had, if we all had a 30,000 foot view of what God was doing with, through all the events and moments and seasons and times in human history, if we all could see as God saw, if we all had the capacity to understand as God understands, we would all have this collective, oh, I get it now. That makes total sense now. I totally get it. That's where we would be. This is a longing that we have. You and I, we have a longing to see God's big picture. It's in all of us, right? Now, other theologians have said a lot of the same, I guess, uh, let me say it differently. There are a lot of theologians that use one singular metaphor to describe this, and I find it to be helpful too. It's likened to looking at a tapestry from the backside. A tapestry is something that's made on a loom, it's a beautiful piece of art, it's woven, but when you look at the backside of it, it makes no sense at all. You, can, you, cannot, you cannot distinguish what the, what the beautiful side looks like. It looks like chaos. There's strings and stuff going all over the place, knots here but not over there. The colors don't make any sense. It's because it's out of context for us. We're on the wrong side of the loom. We're under the loom. But then again, our life under the sun is also lived under the loom. We don't have context of what God is doing, not even close. But we long to. We long to see how all the pieces fit together. We long for this context. And this longing, as the preacher says, is because eternity was put into our hearts. That's what he means by this. As creatures of time, we were created for timelessness. We were made for the presence of God in all seasons, in all moments in all times. This knowledge, this longing, 
It's actually placed inside of us. We were made with a plain knowledge of God. The knowledge of God is plain to all of us. This is what Paul is somewhat saying in Romans 1. He's saying more than this, of course, in Romans 1. He's not saying less than this, though. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. You need to know that there's no such thing as an authentic atheist in the world. I don't care how many PhDs they have. I don't care how many colleges they've taught in. I don't care how many TED Talks they've spoken at. Listen, any atheist has this abounding and abiding reality inside of them. A dilemma, will say, that God has been made plain to them. So they've got to calculate a way to escape that, that understanding. No authentic atheists. There are authentic rebels, though. So, of course, we're frustrated with this life under the sun because time is oppressive. It's tyrannical. It's changing. And we can't edit what it does. But we long, deeply long to see what the big picture is. You could, you could probably accurately say that this frustration you have and this longing is a burden that was placed on you by God. God gave you this burden. So if you have a restlessness in you about knowing God's plan and longing for more of him, that is God's design. God did that to you. And again, as we've seen in the last two chapters, God has us exactly where he wants us. The preacher in this has us exactly right where he wants us. You need to know that the restless burden that was laid on you by God is there so you will face it and reckon with it, so that you will wrestle with it. And the gospel truth is, is this great burden giver is also our great burden remover. And our great burden remover always moves according to perfect time. His timing belt is not broken. He's always in step. That's what we're reminded by the gospel of. We're reminded by the gospel that God's timing, one, it's not our timing for sure. Two, it's far better. It's far more deeply thought of and considerate. It's deeply gentle for you and me. The timing of God is for our greatest good. Second, is for God's greatest glory first. First. But friends, I know when I say this, this is where many people hit the exit or they delete the video or whatever because this is tough. This is a tough truth. If you've had tragedies in your life that have carried a great burden into your world right now, this is the part of God that's likely the most difficult for you. Because it seems like something didn't have to happen. God, why me? God, why now? The timing doesn't make any sense. It, it hurts. You, you feel like you need God to be present and he's nowhere to be seen. How do you worship a God that does that? How do you worship a God that seems so out of step when time has turned and he's not there? How do you do that? I'll tell you what our temptation is. Our temptation is to find diversions. That's how we medicate the pain of the fact that God is not there and he is out of step. When we are in oppressive seasons, we look for ways to medicate it away. If the big picture is veiled and we have no idea of what God is up to, we just seek out small minor league pleasures. This is why he says what he does in verse 12 of what we just read. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to men. 
Listen, if you were here last week, that's going to sound strangely familiar because we looked at the exact same thing. Chapter 2, verse 24, there is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. He will say it three more times before he's done with this book. Pretty much the exact same thing. Why is he saying this? Because he's saying there's, it's, it's, a, it's a statement, like we said last week, of resignation. He's not excited about the fact that all he has left is food and drink and work. What he is saying is, is it's an existence of eating so that I could go back to work, so I could make enough money to go back and eat, so I could work, so I could eat, so I could work, and that's all I have are these small pleasures. And that's even if God decides to give them to me. Listen, I know I'm finding a lot of you today busy with diversions because you've got some heavy seasons you're trying to wade through some oppressive seasons and moments and struggles. And I know I've met a lot of people over the years, a lot of people, who have had this intensely deep reservoir of love for God until something turned. And then God was not there. And they couldn't see the reason of why God would do something so horrible or allow it to happen or whatever. Does it even make a difference? And so they just exit. They exit any worship of God. So friends, listen, if you've been tempted to pull the ripcord on Christ because of something like that, I'm going to be helpful for you right here because I'm just going to show you what the Bible already says. Or if it's not you and you're doing life tightly with somebody who's struggling with this, let me help you be a better missionary. Because in God's timing and according to his wisest plan, the darkest, worst moment in human history occurred under his watchful eye, hear me, happened right on time. Right on time. And it was for his greatest glory, and it is for our greatest good. But in this dark, scary, horrible, heavy moment, it looked like God was nowhere. It looked like his timing belt was broken. He looked radically out of step. When we see Christ bleeding out on a cross, and nothing but villains and scandals around him, when we see him crying out in pain, when we see our king placed in a tomb, We need to know that that was right on time. It's in step. It's part of God's master plan for his glory and for your good. And the Bible goes overboard in telling us this very thing. Galatians 4.4, but when the fullness of time had come, when the fullness of time had come, right? There's part of the plan right there. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Not a day earlier, not a month later, not whenever it felt like happening. God decreed right now in this moment, in this place, in this village, with these people, it's going to happen now. Now. And this Jesus would come on and he would live in this time of changing seasons and changing moments. He would leave timelessness and enter time. That's why we find him preaching in some moments and not in others. He would preach on one day and he would withdraw on the very next. He'd heal some on Tuesday and some on Friday. Why is he doing this? He's walking in the same suffering that you and I have of a tyranny of time. John 7.30 says, So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. It wasn't part of the plan yet. Master plan was not ready to deliver Christ over. Mark 1.14, The time is fulfilled, Christ says. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled. We're starting to see something mature. Something start to get some traction. 
John 13, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that what? His hour had come. Now the master plan is getting very specific and very near his passion. Romans 5, 6, we zoom out. For while we were still weak, at the right time, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus experienced times and seasons like you do. It's part of his suffering, believe it or not. There was a time for him to build a church, and then there was a time for him to see pieces of that church run away. There was a time for him to plant disciples and then uproot pagan theology. There's a time that Christ would laugh and go to parties, and then there was a time where he would cry at his friend's funeral. There was a time for him to speak to officials, and a time that he was silent like a sheep before its shears. There was a time for him to make friends, and a time for him to say goodbye. A time for him to pray in peace, and a time for him to strain as he prayed. A time for him to thrive and grow, and a time for his body to be broken. Friends, there is a sovereign plan placed thoughtfully in precious seasons and times and moments for your good and for his glory. That's always been true, and it's true today. You see, Christ felt the tyranny of time, felt it, and he did so to take your burden from you, to remove yours. So listen, if you're not always sure that your changing seasons are drafted by a good God, look to the gospel. You might be okay with the idea that God is sovereign, ultimate ruler, ultimate power, check, got it. Ultimate good, ah, I don't know. Just look to the gospel. Because it looked like a dumb time for that to happen. I could imagine if I was one of the 12, I could imagine, of course I would be running because that's what they were doing and I'm not better than them. I could imagine just rehearsing in my mind, why now? We were just about to get this bird off the runway. We were just starting to get big crowds. He's in his mid-30s. There's so much to do. Our influence is getting bigger. We're just now starting to kind of get attention. Now, it doesn't make any sense. But our timeless God steps into a changing time to carry you and me to a place of perfection. And this place of perfection is where time is no longer terrorizing us. We could trust this plan, this master plan. We could trust this gospel, and that's because we can trust this God. And here's the good news about the gospel. When you fail to trust, and it looks like a temper tantrum, looks like bad theology, looks like sin, looks like you're medicating on some little pleasure, it does not deter God's love for you. If you are, in fact, buried and in Christ, there is no lever big enough to pull his love away from you, not even your own misbehavior. And you're free to wrestle with that. You're also free to fail here, and you're definitely free to grow in this. Because listen, we could read this poem, and we have the freedom to celebrate the assignment that God has given us for the time and the season that we're in. Because it's thoughtfully considered by a wise God. We can celebrate that God doesn't do anything in vain. Not one thing. We can celebrate the fact that his plan doesn't need to be corrected or amended. His plans are for his glory first and primarily, which is where you will find the greatest good and joy. So for Christians today, the purpose of our times and seasons and moments, whether they're good or whether they're bad, is to be conformed to the image of his son in every moment. 
It says that in Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. Conformed. This conformity is in all times and seasons and moments, even suffering. We know and trust at the end of the day that all moments of our lives work together for our good. For our good. And God is most glorified in us when we enjoy him the most. Some of you, you're moving through a swamp of difficulty right now. Whatever this season is that you're in, here's the truth. This time, this moment, this season, it was strategically woven for your good. For your good. For his glory. We can't see this moment. But again, we're living life under the loom. We're behind the tapestry. Our only answer is to trust our good, sovereign God and put the gospel on our dashboard that we see everything through the prism of the darkest moment in human history also being the wisest, most brilliant moment in human history. I'll tell you, I don't get there fast. There are moments where something will kneecap me and I'm just like you and I have to think, man, this can't, this isn't, this just can't possibly be any good. But when everything settles, I tell myself this, is, this was meant for my good. That I'd be conformed to Christ even in a moment like this. I cannot see how this tragedy makes any sense. I can't see how it fits into any big picture. I can't see how this mess will get anywhere close to God's glory. I can't see it. I can't even find God in this. But I trust. I trust the gospel has earned my trust. And the very best part of our best story is that it was cloaked in a moment that looks like it is radically out of step. Friends, you're also free to celebrate what God has done in long seasons. There's a quote that's been helpful for me the last several weeks. It's by Thomas Boston. It's an old theologian. He says, each generation has its work assigned it by the sovereign Lord. And each person in the generation has his also. And now is our time. We could not be useful in the generation that went before us, for then we were not. Nor can we be useful personally in that which will come after us, for then we shall be off the stage. Now is our time. Let us not neglect usefulness in our generation. I got to tell you personally, this is personally from a pastor. One of the things that's been alarming to me is how many pastors are leaving right now. So many pastors are burning out, leaving, finding another way to, to make a living. Churches are going without pastors. A lot of search committees scrambling right now. And I, I, I expect it's for the same fears that I wake up every morning with, which is I, I don't know what I'm doing. I didn't sign up for COVID church. Didn't, didn't have a book on this waiting for me on the shelf. I might not be the guy for this. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't even know where to put the next foot. I don't, I don't know what it's going to look like in three months. I don't know what it's going to look like in three days. How do you lead? But then I find myself saying, God manages time. God saw this coming. He made sure that I wasn't pastoring some church in 1980 or 1960 or in 2020 because those would be Seasons where I would be off the stage. 
He's got me doing this now with you in this city and this time. And in that, I could be very satisfied in the good, noble timing of God. I'm not hounded by these why me, why now questions. I can have those questions, and I can allow those questions to carry me to the cross where I see how God is thoughtful about the timing of events. This is true for you, not just for me. Hey, a lot of you are homeschooling right now. Didn't really ask for that, did you? Weren't ready for that, were you? Homeschool, right? Or out of work, or being alone, or being fatigued. You see, when we have this truth of the gospel beating inside of us, it doesn't change the bad news. It stabilizes us while we're weathering the bad news. Time is going to change. The kaleidoscope will keep turning. But your perspective doesn't have to. Your perspective doesn't have to be fluid. You can remain confident. You can remain satisfied and courageous because Christ is your captain. So for those of us in here who love Jesus, and are asking the why now, why me questions. Can you trust that God is at the loom building a tapestry that ultimately has your ultimate good in mind and his deepest glory? Can you celebrate the gospel where you're at right now, whatever the time, moment, or season is? Can you do that? Can you repent from your unbelief? Celebrate God's thoughtfulness of mankind. And listen, I know I've got some people in here who've got to be just searching, maybe even skeptically searching. Maybe they wouldn't consider themselves united in Christ. Right? I've got to say, when Paul talks to the Corinthian church, he says in 2 Corinthians, he says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. It's because the gospel story was completing. The greatest few seconds out of all the seconds and time and moments and seasons of your life is where God takes your heart of stone out and replaces it with a heart of flesh. It's the moment where you hear the gospel and you invest your life and trust your life to it. Because friend, listen, you've got eternity placed in your heart. You've had this longing. You've always wanted to know what God was up to. And all the madness and all of the chaos, you've always wanted to know. I'm going to repeat Paul. Now is the favorable time to repent. Now is the favorable time to submit your life. Now is the day of salvation for you. Trust your life to Jesus. Trust your life to his timing. The fact that he has you here today, now, hearing this gospel message. And then finally, friends, there's going to be a day where eternity is not just something that was put in our heart. It's not just an echo of an echo that frustrates and creates a burden in us. It's going to be a reality for us. It's going to be a reality. Time will no longer be oppressive. Seconds will still move forward, and you'll only know that because every second you'll have more joy than the second beforehand. Every second you'll have more beauty before you than the second earlier. Until that day, we celebrate every time, every season, no matter how it turns, no matter. I'll tell you what, go ahead and stand with me. We're going to take communion together. We've done this the last two weeks. It'll be the third week we've done this. I don't know if we have our elements in here. It looks like we do. If you would like one of these little rip and sip cups, if you raise your hand, one of our pastors will come to you and give you a cup. You're just going to have to raise it and keep your hand up. That way they can see you. I know a lot of you grabbed them on the way in. 
And so if you're not used to these contraptions, you want to pull the clear cellophane back to get to the little cracker. The purple one gets you to the juice, right? If you've messed it up, don't feel bad. No judgment here. I fumbled my way through about a dozen of these things before I figured it out. I went to Texas Tech. They don't teach you stuff like this, right? <laughs> be good for us to take just a moment to recognize what God has done for us in the gospel, to remember, as Christ says, do this in remembrance of me. If you're a Christian, we invite you to take this. If you're not a Christian, this is something that's an in-house thing. I would invite you to take Christ instead in this moment. Truly meditate on the words we're saying and apply them to your life. So, Father, we thank you for this bread. We thank you for what is symbolic of your body as it was broken and what seemed like horrible timing. Horrible timing. I'm probably a good 10 years past how old Christ was when he was crucified. To say that that was the peak and pinnacle of a young man's life is, is to understate the matter. A perfect body broken. A guiltless body broken. And he did so for us. That our bodies might not see corruption. That the law would be removed from us. The grace would find us. The shame would be extracted that all of life would not be hevel, but all of life would be full of meaning. So Lord, we take this bread in remembrance of you. And Father, we have this juice, really representative of your blood, your royal blood that was spilt as you were made a man that no one could even recognize. Before you spilt blood on the cross, you spilt it by being beat and tortured. You sweat it when you prayed. And it was all so that we would have royal blood running through our veins. That you would adopt us into a family that we have no business being in. That there would be a chair for us at a banqueting table that will have our name on it saved forever and ever. Never to be taken away. Not by our performance. Not by how impressive we are not by how well we follow any set of rules. You've called us family and you will not unadopt us. So we take this in remembrance of the blood that you've spilled. And Lord, we thank you for this word, this passage. Every passage has you as the centerpiece and the superhero of every moment in this, this book, this Bible. Even something like this even something a thousand years before you incarnated. It can't help. Your Bible cannot help but to breathe you as the center, the focal point. So we meditate on you as we sing. As Chaz comes up and leads us in prayer. As we have this moment of just commitment and devotion. So Father, we love you and we thank you and just pray that you would move in hearts here however you see fit. I know different people need to hear from you in different ways. I know some people sense trying to escape an oppressive moment. I know some people are straight up mad at you because you've done something wrong and it feels like it's out of time. I know some people suspect and are skeptical because all they can see is the back of the tapestry. I know some of us in here just need to be encouraged 
I know some of us need to repent. There's so many different things that the hearts need to do in this place today. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would move and make yourself real and tangible and would do the work necessary. Oh, we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.